Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Dads and ships at sea. It's Practitioner Radio number 61 with yours truly, George Spaulding, EVP of Pink Elephant, and Troy DeMolan, another vice president at Pink Elephant. Hello, Troy. Hey, George. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So it's December, Troy, and our last Practitioner Radio was August. That's embarrassing. Uh, I am embarrassed. In fact, uh, I had our listener email me last week and kicked me in the pants and said, what's happening, guys? Are you Have you stopped this? And I'm going, uh, no, it's kind of, you know, September happened and we never stopped for a moment, right? Well, you went, you went to Asia. That's where it started. I went to Asia and spent several weeks over there. Yeah. And it hasn't stopped since. We just finished with Pink North a week ago. Yeah, in December and on Toronto, our new Northern show, the Northern Canadian show, which was good. At the, that's the first pink conference in I don't know how many years, at least in the North America, that I haven't spoken at. So it was kind of fun to be there and watch and see everybody else speaking. It was great. Well, Troy, uh, you when we talked in the summer, we had one of our shows, we had Mike Orson on, I think, and um, we talked about Lean IT. And since then, we've discovered that Lean IT, mostly from customer response, has been is a big deal and that people are uh, anxious to learn more about it. Now, you're our kind of, you and Jack Probst are our two resident experts at Pink Elephant on Lean. I know you're excited about it. So we're going to drill down a little more for the in this specific uh, practitioner radio into process mapping and value stream. Why don't you kind of clarify that for me? Yeah, so it sounds a bit technical, but I'm going to make it very practical for everyone to understand. Please. So, so <laughs> let's Please start make with... make it practical for me to understand, Troy. All right, that's, well, that might be challenging. No. It's, uh, Watch it's no problem, it. Watch George. it. <laughs> all right, let's start with the base premise of what Lean's all about. Just kind of start there. All right, so Lean, a continual improvement methodology, and you could say that its primary focus is on removal of waste and preserving the value to your consumer, but doing that with the least expended resources. Resources are precious. We have a few of those these days. Time is one of those things. So. That's a key thing to consider. In fact, time is probably our most precious element. And as we are asked to do more with less, we have to figure out how to optimize our time. Why spend time doing stuff we shouldn't have to because no one values it, least of all the consumer who's paying for the service. So this value stream mapping conversation we're going to have today is how do you take a process and actually tweak and tune it to optimize it. So I don't know why this is different in some ways than what we've always been doing at Pink. We've uh, we've talked about process design. We've got process design workshops that we uh, we help people with. And uh, so why is that different? I mean, I, I can see processes, boxes and little ovals and lines and arrows and decision points and those kinds of things. Why is this different than that? Well, let me start by telling you a story, George. I like stories. I hope you do. So this is a real story, a real true story. It happened in August, and uh, Jack and I were co-teaching Lean IT Foundations in August at our forum event. 
And of course, one of the things you do as a good instructor is you want to understand your students, why they're there, why they have chosen this class and why they care to even be in the room for the next couple of days. Well, so I start this process and the person on my left has his arms crossed and he doesn't look like he's having much fun. We haven't started yet, so that's a bit concerning. So I, you know, I start with him and say, please introduce yourself. I won't mention his name. But he says to me, and I'll never forget this, I'm here because my boss told me to be here. Now, I've heard that before. That wasn't surprising. I said, okay, uh, and why did he tell you to be here? Well, he says, you need to go to that lean class because you build fat processes. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, he thinks I build fat processes, and so he signed me up for lean. I'm not, a sure, not exactly sure what that means yet, but I'm here to find out, and uh, that's why I'm here. Okay, I knew why he was here and he was in the right spot because this comes back to the value stream question you asked me. So let's unpack this a bit. So first of all, in the world of process design, there are a couple of high level steps you need to go through. And until recently, until maybe a year and a half ago when I became lean and I drank the Kool-Aid here, I didn't even know there were some steps that I was missing. In fact, there was some parts where I actually said I thought doing something that is completely future state without considering existing was even a better way to go, but I'll put that aside. Let's start with the base concept. The base concept, of course, is what do we need to achieve for the consumer and or customer? That's understandable. So we define the goal of the process. Uh, then we define the process flow. And this is not crazy, not, under, not something we don't understand. You know, what's step one, step two, step three? Is there a decision box? What flows into what? And then, of course, after you figure out what is it we have to do, the next question is who gets to do it? And this is where we'll apply a racy, matrixy, or a swim lane. So you've got the process flow defined, and now you've got the who question defined. And for the most part, that's where we have always stopped. Yeah, it's basic process design. We've we've done this for decades even, and certainly had rapid process design workshops and those types of things that we were able to help our organizations with. And then there was a discussion, I think, about selling that at, at, at that time. In other words, now the process is designed, how do we get buy-in and those kinds of things. Yes. So we're looking at implementation and getting buy-in. There is one more step in a lean value stream analysis that we have not yet done. And this is what I didn't even know was missing until I actually became more aware of the lean practices. And that's what's called a value stream analysis of the process. So let me describe what that looks like. The first of all, process is modeled. We know what all the steps are. Now, the next step is to put it into a context for analysis of what time will you expect this process to be completed by? So to do that, you've got to consider a couple of key things. One, each activity you've got on that flow chart has to be having a, an expected time design. Okay, so this step should take 30 minutes, this step should take an hour, this step might take three days, that can vary. But then the next step, which is the downstream step in the process, may not be able to start this next step immediately. In fact, almost invariably, it won't be able to. So there's an, a wait time before that next step can start. Think of it the stuff in queue for the next downstream person to tackle. So there's the actual time, there's the wait time, and then the total time of this process is what's called cycle time, the point of start to the point you actually get something out the back end, which has to include all of those time elements. 
So take an example, a new employee is being brought on to the organization. You're going to want to be able to tell someone what the predictable throughput is going to be for this onboarding process, which might have 25 steps. Some steps are parallel, some are sequential. They can't start until the three preceding steps have all been completed. And so before I can ever say to you, you know, what's the predictable time to bring on a new employee, I have to kind of map the total value stream. The words you're using, Troy, are extremely sound an awful lot like manufacturing uh, because I, I throughput, cycle time, that kind of stuff. That comes out of the manufacturing world is what I'm that's what I understand anyway. Totally. Lean comes from it has its roots in the manufacturing space. But if you consider that all basic outcomes are the product of a process, a manufacturing process, I have raw input. I have a set of activities that take that raw inventory and create something on the outside of that, whether that's a new laptop being provisioned, a server built, a new employee being uh, provisioned, or even a service restored or a change approved. It's all process. So this premise of doing a value stream analysis on the process and understanding the speed this process will actually produce something is still applicable to any process there is. Okay. Good. Go ahead. Okay. So that's this, this concept of start to finish and what does that actually look like and what's the predictable throughput. That's one thing, but that still doesn't give me the customer experience. Let me. I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, Troy. So uh, from my ancient uh, ITIL experience, does this sound in some respects like MTTR, where we broke down the incident uh, into incredible chunks, small chunks, and we're trying to shorten the cycle time, if you were, uh, with a mean time to repair. That's exactly what's happening. So in a mean time to repair, you have to know all of the time chunks and understand what the average mean time to repair is. Okay, good, good. So you, you can apply it to a process like incident management, as you're doing here, but you can also apply it to any service request flow that you have to you know, define, because... With a service request, you have to also provide a provisioning SLA. Right. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted, but it, was, it made it clearer for me. Absolutely. All right. And you can you know, can roll this up to a project. What's the actual estimated time for the project throughput going to be? Right. That's all knowing all the component parts and the expected time. But the key point of this is we're not just looking at the process time, which is the you know in action time, but the time between the process time, which invariably will be. 80 to 90% of your total throughput, the stuff between stuff. Wow. Now, okay. add to that the fact that most organizations can't, you know, work off the premise that someone hits the buy me now button or the, the request is initiated or the incident is in the queue among 100 other incidents. You're not likely to be able to start on that immediately the moment the incident occurs or the request is submitted. So there's an actual wait time before the person even begins working the action. And that's going to be called lead time. The lead time is actually the point of order or the point of occurrence to the point of delivery. So that's the total package time, which is what the customer experiences. So I place an order for a car, or in my case, recently I placed an order for a bed for my wife's um, 50th birthday. And the fact is I couldn't receive that bed until four and a half weeks later. That was the total lead time experience. Not a very good experience, but that was what I experienced. Because they were building the bed? Yeah, and then it was in back order and it was in queue. So we typically think only about the process time. We don't think of the actual throughput of the end to end. 
Now, there's a couple of problems with this. A, if you don't do this kind of timing of this process you've now designed, you have no clue what the average completion rate is going to be. You, so you can't get into any kind of discussion of predictability and or provisioning SLA. So that's one problem. There's another problem is that in Lean, we talk about not all activity is is of the same value. In fact, there's three core classifications to doing something and what you're doing relative to customer value. So in essence, the first one is called a value-added activity. And George, if you were paying me to do something, that's something you would expect me to do to produce what you're, you know, you're, you're expecting. It's something that I would do that would directly contribute to me achieving a result, mowing your lawn, building you a garage. You know, I've got the hammer in the hand and I'm actually pounding a nail into a piece of wood. But when you, when I talk to you about the garage, I'd, I'd certainly want to clarify some very specific things. How much was this garage going to cost? How much disruption was going to be in my life? And how long was it going to last? Those are key things in terms of the value. And for that last one, I would have to consider all the other projects that I'm currently working on or have my crew working on. Because I couldn't, you know, theoretically imagine that's the only dedicated task they're doing. Or maybe they are. And in that case, you know, I have to make different arrangements. So there's also a type of work that we do because we simply have to. We have to submit our blueprint to the town office to get it authorized, to get a working permit, right? Now, ideally, you would prefer not to pay for that time. And it also, you know, expands the time for your garage to actually be completed. But it's required. Uh, it's required by law in this case. This is called a necessary non-value add. It's necessary, but it doesn't directly contribute to me building your garage. Well, you can't build it without it, but it's a compliance issue more than anything, right? Yeah, so it's necessary, but it's not directly adding value to the process of garage creation. So it, it's a key, but the thing is, if I over-engineer, let's say I take that same blueprint and I go not just to the city, but now I go to the county, and then I go from the county and check out some legal requirements for the state, I'm overkilling this. Okay, do you get me? I'm, I'm, I'm actually adding too much due diligence. You're building a fat process. I'm building a fat process uh, in, the, in one way because I'm adding too much compliance and or control. And a control in a general sense is something that I would do to make sure that process is glued together, consistently repeatable. Um, there's an owner, there's a documented approach to doing the process. These are all things that are good, but too much of this is actually detrimental to the throughput of building your garage. So it's, it's a balancing act. You're trying to minimize, not maximize necessary non-value. Got it. There's a third category of work which is called non-value, and that's simply waste. This is something, it doesn't add value to the garage building experience, nor is it even something that is required for a necessary non-value. It actually may be an old regulation that I still comply to that's no longer on the books. Or I don't spend time with you in a planning mode, and I basically choose okay, to use the wrong siding on your garage. And you look at this, you come in on day three, I've got two walls up, the siding up, and you look at me and you say, Troy, what's going on? I, that's not the siding I ordered. And so what that time was that I was actually doing something of non-value is called waste. It sure is. It's also some, yeah, I've seen that happen. In fact, I've personally had that happen. <laughs> so everything we do in life is basically classified in three ways. Value added, necessary non-value, and or waste. Because all value is produced by a process. Everything we get in life is out of a process, whether that's getting my kids to school or building your garage or building a server. 
It's all a process. Now, what if I looked at each activity, now that I've actually got this activity defined, regardless of what ITIL says, you know, in the incident process, and then I begin looking at that specific activity for a waste analysis. I could literally say, okay, 15% of this is waste, 20% is, you know, necessary non-value, and the rest is value. But then I could begin to say, how do I slim down this one activity to optimize the value, minimize the necessary non-value, and eliminate the waste, which predictably I could probably shear off that one task, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% of the actual action I would normally do at that moment. Now, repeat that across the 35 steps in what happens to my ability to create predictability and speed. Time is money. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, quite frankly, this is, this is what the building trades try and do all the time. The actual time on site is always tried to minimize. Uh, they now have building systems that all, in, in essence, snap together almost. And um, so building whatever it is, a house or a garage or whatever, is uh, quicker and quicker and quicker. So get back to this premise of lean, which is preserving the value proposition, which is creating the garage of your dreams, but doing that with the least amount of expended resources and the fastest amount of time makes George a happy guy. Well, especially if uh, Troy, the garage builder, has given me a fixed quote. So Troy's decided that he can build my garage with my cedar siding, et cetera, et cetera, up near my cabin for about $23,000. I happen to know that uh, the guy next door built one for $23,000. So I, I agree to, to the $23,000. Well, now it's uh, we're done. I'm done with the negotiation. I'm going to get a garage for $23,000. Now the question is, how much profit does Troy make out of the deal? Troy makes his, uh, Troy has a certain amount of profit built in based on one set or speed of processes and the amount of time. But if he can speed it up, I'm happier and he's happier. So let's talk about happy. And this is the context of value. Happy actually means achieving three specific things for both of us. <laughs> one is that you have your expectations met. So the quality expectations that you define from the voice of customer, VOC, says this is the garage, this is the dimension, this is the model, these are the attributes that I expect this garage to have. So I actually get you that garage as you've defined and pictured it in your dream of dreams. Okay, that's your critical to quality requirements. But if I'm not able to do that within the price and or cost that I have quoted, either you or I am going to be in a difficult place, depending on is it fixed or is it time and materials, okay? And if I deliver it exactly the way you describe it, within the cost parameter, but it takes me six months longer than you expect, um, you're not happy and I'm not happy because my crew has basically been tied up on this thing. Oh, yeah, you've lost lots of money. I lost lots of time. I didn't have the value of the garage, of having the garage. And I had the mess and, and whatnot. Even off the top of my head, my first three parameters were, you know, what's it going to be? How long, how much disruption and how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? So this is a principle called just-in-time, which is the basis of the lean premise of the Toyota production system. So I have to achieve all three goals to make you happy, and that's give you what is critical to quality, give you the right cost expectation, and give it to you just in time, the right speed of delivery. Now, when we do process design and stop at process design and don't do a value stream map, I can design you a process that will build you a garage, 
but I can't promise you that it's going to be on time because I have no premise of how long it's going to take me because I haven't done a value stream analysis of the time elements of this, nor can I promise you because time is now variable what the cost is going to be and or the cost to me. So in normal process design where we stop at process and don't do value stream analysis, we actually are only able to predict one of three conditions for success. I mean, I think you, when you and I were talking earlier, you referred to that in essence as irresponsible, that that really designing processes without putting the value stream into it, without putting time and money into it, was basically irresponsible. Was this the, was this the fat process guy in your class? Yes, because he had, and we had taught many people the same thing, stopped at the process design and didn't know whether that was an efficient or optimized process because he hadn't looked at time, he hadn't looked at type of activity, and he hadn't optimized the process provisioning. Now, many people will say, Eichel doesn't give me the value I need because partly we haven't gone along and optimized the process before we've actually deployed it. So we've optimized a non-optimal scenario, which is AKA fat. We've optimized fat. We've just put in a process according to best practice, but not necessarily fit for purpose practice. Now, here's what I'll say on top of what you just said. I totally agree. We've been irresponsible if we haven't taken it to the next step. In fact, you should never implement a process without first looking at a reference models, what does good look like? So there's, there's ITIL. ITIL's your reference model. TOGAF, COBIT, your reference model. That's what good looks like according to a panel of anonymous subject matter experts, okay? Now, I take your reference model, then I put in front of it, picture me putting a, a lens in front of that reference model, the lean reference model. ITIL says, here's what is a good thing. And lean would say, here's the level at which we should do it. Here's best practice, here's fit for purpose practice. Without looking at the best practice through fit for purpose, literally we're gonna generate a fat process, not intentionally, we're gonna over-engineer it, and we have no ability to predict its outcome. Now, in our in our defense, I'm gonna defend us briefly, but we always said that you should, you know, not take ITIL as a Bible, you should, while ITIL was good, and you should always adapt things for your local environment, adapt things for your uh, your specific organization. And I guess in, in our saying that, we meant, uh, you know, don't over-engineer it, don't think that ITIL's the only way to do it, it's just a guideline, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what you're you're saying is we really need to go much further than that. We need to put time, we need to put value against a process. I like your analogy of looking at the uh, um, a designed process through a lean lens. I like that. Yes. Lean gives me a standard methodology and thinking model to say how would I adopt and adapt to optimize this process for my own personal use. Until then, it's kind of an ethereal statement, right? It's simply a... Go figure it out. <laughs> Lean gives you the tools to actually know how to figure that out. There's actually one more piece to this that I'd like to, to tie in, and that's getting back to these weight states. So there's, there's one thing, which is optimizing the actual task in hand, the activity, because not all activity is worth the same. We talked about that relative to the three types of activity. But I mentioned earlier that the real culprit, the real time sink is not the actual wait uh, time and actual action, but it's the wait time between things. It's when I'm waiting for the, you know, because I've run out of a certain ingredient or, or a certain item for building your shed, and now I've got people 
waiting literally in non-productive time until the next batch of shingles arrives to roof your shed. This wait state. In fact, there's one element which is making sure that the the next step in queue has what it needs, but the other key element to that is understanding whether the next step in the queue of the process actually has the capability to take that process step on at the right time. What I mean by that, does it have enough capacity? So this is now getting to something called the theory of constraints, and I'll make a link in the show notes about another show where I look at the theory of constraints as well. But in basic premise, let's consider that process as a value stream and or value system, okay? Simply the all the things needed to generate the outcome. Now that value stream will never produce an outcome any faster than the limiting bottleneck. So think about 10 steps and step three basically is a bottleneck. And in front of that bottleneck, because there's many things coming to it, the inventory of incoming work is piling high, right? So picture the guy who is putting, uh, I don't know, he's, he's building the wall and he's got that task for your garage, but I've got him on three other projects. Now, the problem is he could only apply a third of his time at most to your project, George. So if the other guys are on site and this guy only shows up once in a while, he could be the plumber or it could be well, maybe the plumbing in your garage, but the electrician. Who I, get comes, it, I get right? it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But in front of his work station, basically I've got this huge pile of incoming work, call it inventory. That garage will not be built any faster than the work that can be processed through his step. Right Now, if I was to optimize the step ahead of his or optimize a step behind him, that garage will not get built any faster. So this premise of knowing where your constraint is and then figuring out how you're going to deal with that constraint, either you know applying him more to the project, which is giving him more capacity to the specific task, or giving the process an alternative method for achieving that goal, which is bringing on another resource perhaps, so basically bypassing your constraint, that whole system will never be faster than your limiting bottleneck. You follow me? Yep. I cannot know where my bottlenecks are until I look at the whole thing end to end and then see the literally the inventory coming in. So I can't manage bottlenecks, which again is about predictability of the throughput, unless I'm looking for constraints. And I can only see constraints when I look at the weight states between steps. And so my, so I guess my question is, is, is it possible to see this in the abstract or do you have to actually do it once uh, to actually see some of these weight states? I mean, I, obviously you can make a shot at what it is in the abstract, but uh, some of these I can, I can easily imagine don't come up until you actually do it. It's a bit of both because if, in my example, if I have my contractor doing my electrical work on three projects, I know I can only have him available a third of the time. So... I will have to know this ahead of time. And this is called resource management or time management, right? So I, this is where people, when they're doing project estimation, they have to estimate the available resources. And when they run out of time, which is the unit of uh, currency here, they know they can't get this done any faster. So there's a projection element I can make if I'm doing good time management and time tracking, though that's almost non-existent in most organizations. And if it is, it's only limited in certain things not all things they do. But then the other point to your you know, accurate assumption is sometimes I can only look at constraints after the fact because that's when I would see inventory actually piling up. 
Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, to me, what you've described, and, and I think the analogy of building the garage or building a house is actually quite a good one because what you're describing is the, the uh, this value uh, stream mapping and stuff like that is basically the what the general contractor does when, uh, when they're building a, a house or a building. So the simpler the building, a garage, the easier it is, the more complicated a house or big house, it gets a little more complex. But basically, it's uh, everyone's got the same goal. They want to get it done. They want to get it done within the within the budget, and they want to get it done within the time frame. And they and the people want to move into their house. So uh, it's uh, it's actually a pretty good analogy, and it makes a lot of sense too. And it applies to all processes, whether that's a request process, a request of a service, whether that's a you know a process for mean time to repair, whether that's a process for managing the authorization and scheduling of changes. Any process can be evaluated. I can easily see this applied to change. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely applied to change because, you know, the change, because we have a pretty much defined beginning. Here's the change request. And then we have a time to market, if you will, as to how long it's going to take for that change to go from a request to, through the system, through approval, through actual implementation to final closure. I can easily see that. And sometimes the value of the change diminishes if it takes too long. Yes. One last thought on flow for you. I know we're at the end. Go ahead. So I'm trying to optimize flow. This is what we're talking about. That's the whole premise of Lean, optimizing flow, producing value with you know the optimized resource. But there's two things that basically keep that from happening. A, it's doing the wrong stuff or not doing enough of the right stuff. That's this concept of value stream analysis and time and et cetera. But there's also the premise of defects. The more defects I have in my flow, more times I'm going to have to stop my flow and basically correct a deflect. So maybe that's another session we do. But I have to go after both issues of reoccurring defect, stopping the line, and optimizing expected speed by design. All right, Troy. Thank you very much, Troy. As usual, you've been uh, interesting and introspective, and you've given me something to think about and something to chew on. And I hope that our listeners feel the same way. Uh, we'll try and make these a lot more often now since Troy's off the road and uh, we'll both be in Toronto in January. Uh, with Christmas coming up, I wish everyone a, a happy holidays and uh, hope that we uh, hear from you again. Troy, some final sign-off? Well, Merry Christmas, everyone, and look to talk more about lean in the new year. And cyber resilience, but that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother show. Yep. Bye now. Bye.